Well, good morning, everybody. Could you please rise and worship along with us? Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you, will, you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come together to worship today. And Father, we're here to lift up the name of Jesus together. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. good morning. Glad to see everyone this morning. Glad that you have gotten out of bed to come worship with us today. The Lord is good and we're going to worship him today. Please make sure you fill out your, your connection card, if you would. And for those watching online, we ask that you do the same thing. And at this time, I'm going to give you exactly three minutes to go say hello to somebody. Go talk to somebody you haven't talked to this morning.
Well, people were longing for the return of the Lord. Are you? It's, it's getting rough out there. But during the time of the writing of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, people were so expectant of the return of the Lord, they expected it literally at every moment, that some people were just checking out of life because they thought he was coming back, so they thought, what's the point? They weren't killing themselves, but they were just checking out. They were just going up on the mountain. They weren't working, some of them. They weren't doing anything they were supposed to be doing. They were just simply, I hate to, hate to put it this way, but selfishly waiting for the Lord to return because there were things they should have been doing, and we talked about some of that last week. The last couple chapters of verse, of verse one, uh, chapter one, uh, or let me put that back. The last couple chapters of 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul wrote to comfort and encourage his readers because remember, they were stressed out over, well, what's going to happen to the people who have died before Jesus returned? And Paul set them straight on that, and he encouraged them, and he said, okay, here's what you need to know. And he said to go encourage one another with these words. And this brings us to the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians was just written a few months after 1 Thessalonians. The fact, that fact would put the dating of the letter somewhere between late 52 and early 53 AD. Now, the letter was written in part because of a report that had reached Paul concerning some troublesome new developments in the life of the church at Thessalonica. And Paul felt that these issues were strong enough he needed to write about them. Some people who were using forged evidence, they were alleging that they were mission, the missionaries Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They had been teaching that the day of the Lord had already begun. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. And by the way, that teaching would have further pushed people over the edge to say, well, you know what? I don't really need to do anything. Don't need to work. I just need to hang on until Jesus comes back. So what Paul does in the book of 2 Thessalonians is he's basically overall working to, to uh, clear that false teaching up. Paul indicated that certain great events must precede the day of the Lord. And he insisted those things had not yet taken place. So for those who are saying, hey, we're in the day of the Lord, you know, it's coming back in the next few days or whatever, Paul says, no, that's not true, because things have to happen that have not yet happened. Some undisciplined, and if you remember last week's message, undisciplined people were those who were kind of out of step. Some people called them unruly, some versions called them unruly. There were some undisciplined Christians who were refusing to work to support themselves. Those were, uh, those were the ones that needed to repent and become productive once again. The working Christians were, on, that, on the other hand, and throughout this book, are directed to quit enabling the undisciplined ones to continue, in, to continue in their undisciplined lifestyles and to take measures to help lead the undisciplined to repentance. And you're going to see, you know, that's throughout that book. Now, we've talked about the temptation that, to think that God is not with us and that God doesn't care about us and how it appears that those who perpetrate evil are getting over that they're getting ahead in this world. And one would think that following Jesus would shield them from falling victim to being persecuted, to email scams. <laughs> Gosh, I see, you can't believe how much time I spent this week on that garbage. Yet the, that the church at Thessalonica, Christian people were facing real persecution beyond somebody trying to scam them. <clears throat> um, all Christians throughout the empire were facing this. So in today's message entitled, Think About It, Paul seeks to encourage those in Christ to keep moving forward. He also wants them to understand that folks who reject Christ <clears throat> will not be pleased when the Lord returns. In other words, that whole concept of, well, people who are not following Jesus and people who are doing evil, man, they're really getting ahead. Ultimately, Paul says, no, they're not, because the day of the Lord will not be a joyful time for them. And by the way, that should motivate us even further to try to reach people who don't know the Lord. Because do you want people to be terrified when Jesus returns or to rejoice? It can be easy. It can be easy when life gets difficult to give up and quit. Paul wants us all to think about the choices we're making in life <clears throat> because those choices matter. For instance, the ultimate choice, will I obey or not obey Christ? Will I give my life to him? Or will I not? So what I'm going to encourage us through this message is to, some points that we really need to think about. Think about it before we do some of the things that we do, think some of the things that we think, say some of the things that we say. 
So this morning we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll begin with verses 3 and 4. It says this. Much better. What? Second. Did I say first? I'm sorry. What's it say? It says 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. I didn't write the bulletin. Although I wrote that. <laughs> I'm not throwing Crystal under the bus. What are you talking about? She can get me back. Sorry for the typo. It's been an interesting week. I think it was the hacker, or not the hacker, the scammer. We didn't get hacked, we got scammed. Anyway, no, Jeff made a mistake on that. So anyway, can we start now? Thank you. <laughs> All right. Now I'm all discombobulated. Oh, we ought to thank God for you, or thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith flourishes more and more, and the love of each other, uh, the love of each one of you for all. Gosh, I'm messed up this morning. Let me start that again. <laughs> we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith flourishes more and more, and the love of each of each one of you for all for all for one another is greater even greater as a result we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions you're enduring so what we're going to look at this morning first of all is the praise Paul begins this second letter knowing that there's issues with some praise and what he's trying to do is he's trying to encourage them by saying, hey, I want to praise you for the fact that your faith is staying strong. In the midst of what you're dealing with, you're not quitting. And in the verse, he, said, he uses this word ought. And this word ought expresses a moral obligation. He says, I'm morally obligated to praise you because what you're doing is so great. He's not just doing it out of a sense of duty or just saying, hey, I'm just going to give you, you know, sometimes people just throw out a compliment. They don't really mean it. They just say it. Paul says, no, I'm obligated to share this with other people. See, in the first letter, Paul praised the church highly, and the church might not, might not have felt that they deserved that, such a high praise. And so Paul insists that he has a moral obligation to give these high praises because they've earned it and deserved it. The phrase, rightly so, could be translated as fitting, and it shows why he's giving these praises. They're not empty. They're not just, you know, when I coached, sometimes a girl would make a play and and it wasn't really good, but you still tried to encourage them so you could teach them later. Well, that's not what Paul's doing here. He's like, man, you guys have nailed it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 provides us with a remarkable example for the Thessalonian believers and their unwavering faith and their love despite persecution. It's easy to be faithful. It's easy to love when everything's going well. By the way, this is why a lot of marriages crash and burn, because as soon as things get tough, they can't deal with it, and they start tearing at each other. And in the church, the temptation is when times get tough, instead of banding together, they tend to, they can blow apart. This passage offers us an opportunity to explore some of the, this theme of spiritual growth amid this adversity that they were facing. In verses 3 and 4, we can recognize the power of faith, because when they were going through these difficult times, what was holding them together? It was their faith. In the midst of trials, their faith grew, and it became a source of strength and encouragement for others who were facing the same thing. I mean, let's face it, if you see everybody else around you failing, most of the time we're going to fail too because we don't feel like we can do it. Faith encourages and empowers and challenges others <clears throat> to trust in God's promises and to find hope in difficult times. And boy, that can be hard, can't it? very hard, very difficult. Perseverance stresses active endurance under trying and difficult circumstances and pressure. So he says, you guys are persevering. They're not just holding on and hoping, but they are going and they're getting stronger and stronger. It denotes a patience put into practice during one of the most difficult times in life, times of difficulty and suffering. Faith refers to, in this context, as refers to their consistency of faith. It's not just a one-time con confession of the mouth, but it's faithfulness. And these readers have maintained that position despite 
the opposition brought to them. By the way, which most of it they could have stopped by just giving in. One way they could, a lot of people could, and throughout history you see people who've been martyred for the faith, all they had to do, many of them just say, I don't believe that, and they go home. But see, when you have a deep felt conviction that changes who you are and changes your life, you're not wired to do that because you know that even if they take your life, where are you going after it's all said and done? What's longer, eternity or 100 years on this earth? That's a big issue. Amidst all the things that were happening to the church, and Paul was very familiar with it, their faith flourished and was strengthened. Perseverance and faith are the Thessalonians' one response to the trials and the things that they faced. Paul used these two terms to describe what, was, what the church was facing. It was hard. It was difficult. Trials and persecution are, you know, not too far off from the same word, but he's kind of double-hitting it so he could say, hey, I know what you're going through. Persecution indicates suffering inflicted by others because of their opposition to, what, to your beliefs. So when you're being persecuted, persecution is because people don't line up with your beliefs and they're going to make you pay for having yours. Afflictions are, is a broader term. It basically refers to any suffering. But in the New Testament, it frequently is tied to the fact of persecution. Almost, it's almost the same word. And when you combine these two words together, they're used for emphasis for Paul to say, man, I know what you're going through. Because sometimes when people go through things, we... we, we we don't mean to, but by the way we deal with it, we make light of it. Oh, you lost, you know, you lost a pet, or you lost a family, or you, and, and we, we don't understand sometimes the gravity of that with somebody in somebody's life. But Paul's trying to emphasize the severity of what they're dealing with. And that even makes the fact that they're flourishing even greater. Flourishing was a metaphor taken from the observation of the rapid growth one can see in, a, in an animal or a plant. And, you know, for those of you who had little pets, you know, a lot of times people get the little puppy, and then just a few months later, that thing is huge. Or same with a cat. You know, it's a little kitten, and all of a sudden, it's a big cat. Or, you know, if you get a little... I saw a video the other day of somebody who has a, a, who has a panther, and it was a little bitty, and now it's big. And I'm like, oh, I want to pet that thing so bad. But when you see that growth, when you're planting a garden, do you get go, oh, well, stuff's growing? Or do you get excited? You're like, yeah, look, those tomatoes are growing. I'm going to have tomatoes by the time it's, it's you know, when, when I need those. It's an exciting thing to see. One of the ways that we can see growth, and you can see growth in your life, is how our love is for others and for God. One of the marks that you can say, am I growing, is is my love growing for my brothers and sisters in Christ, and is it, is it growing toward God? That is one of those things that can be seen. See, despite the persecution, instead of turning on each other, which is very natural, they got deeper and deeper in love with one another. It, that persecution kind of bonded them together and said, we're going to fight this together. We're going to be strong together. Paul praised the church for the cultivation of that love that they were showing that grew when it probably shouldn't have, when it grew in, in spite of the persecution. The transformative power of love allows us to extend grace when we don't feel like it, give forgiveness when it's not deserved, and kindness when we're treated with hostility. Love can do a multitude of things in people's lives. And I've seen so many people, you know, that you're like, man, if you would just love somebody besides yourself, life would be so much better. You'd be so much happier. The church was embracing growth in the midst of adversity. Adversity has the potential to hinder or grow your faith. For many people, adversity will destroy them because they allow it to. Challenging times offers us the opportunity for spiritual growth, and it allows for our faith and our love to mature through that refining process, through perseverance and reliance on God. If you find yourself worrying about everything under the sun, who are you relying on? If you find yourself, when times get difficult, tearing into the people you love, What's happening? If you don't trust God, it changes a lot of things in life. And Paul ultimately used the example of the church at Thessalonica, who is under intense pressure, as an example. And he says, what you guys are doing is an encouragement to other people. You know, we're in a rough world right now. 
we always have been since, you know, since the return of the, since Jesus ascended into heaven. But we're in a rough world right now. So what does the world need to see from the church? Perseverance, faith, and love. They don't need to see anger, backbiting, and sniping. That doesn't do anything. Do you know what I'm saying? We have to be able to show the example of how Christ can pull us together. As in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-10, through 10, Paul stresses that the Thessalonians' report of the way they were living was encouraging others. He used the word boast in his reports, and he was doing that because he was so proud of what they were doing. Their faith and love of that, the faith and love of that church was an inspiration for other people. And really, when you live your life, what do you, what do you want to be? See, we can be somebody who inspires others or someone who destroys others. What do you want to be? See, we destroy others with anger, hate, and all this other garbage, but we inspire them by faith and love. When people look and see that in us, it can inspire them to do the same thing. We're never going to change the world with anger. We're never going to bring Jesus, people to Jesus from anger. I know people who are Christians even who are just perpetually angry about everything. One thing I'll tell you, turn off the stinking news. You'll feel a lot better about life. I mean, you need to kind of know what's going on. What's going on in Israel is horrible. It's absolutely horrible what's going on there. Those cowards are taking women and children and killing them and using them for shields. They'll pay their price. But, you, you know, sometimes we spend so much time worrying about everything else around us, it makes us bitter. We need to get away from that. We should always explore practical ways to uplift and to strengthen one another as we navigate through the trials in life. Have you ever had somebody come alongside of you when you're going through a difficult time? How great does that feel when somebody's there to help you? You be that for someone else also. The example of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 can encourage our faith to grow and our love to grow, and we can also inspire people to do the same thing. The world around us, around us needs to see that because if those of us who call ourselves by the name Christian can't do that, there's no hope for this. There's no hope because our faith should make us be that way. The world around us needs to see that. Instead of blasting a brother or sister in Christ when we don't get our way or when, we, when, when, when things are difficult, we need to do what we can Instead, why don't we blast how much we love them? Why don't we send out those messages on Facebook, those cryptic messages that says, you know, I love my brother and sister in Christ in spite of what we're dealing with. When we blast one another, when we badmouth one another to others, what kind of impression does that give them about you and about God's church and God's people and about Christ? We have to think about that. So when you're going through difficult times, think about this for a minute. When times are tough, how do you react? How will the trials of life affect you? Will you be one of those who become bitter? Or will you become one of those whose faith will grow and your love will grow and you understand that you have to, have, you have to be able to depend on Christ through those times? Let your difficulties, don't let your difficulties define and destroy you. Let them make you victorious in Christ. And that's what happened with the church at Thessalonica. Let's look at verses 5 through 10. <clears throat> this is evidence of God's righteous judgment to make you worthy of the kingdom of God for which, in fact, you are suffering. For it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to you who are being afflicted to give rest together with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. With flaming fire, he will melt out punishment on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will undergo the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his strength. When he comes to be glorified among his saints and admired on the day among all who have believed that you did in fact believe our testimony. So the next thing we see is Paul talks about the persecution. It can remain abs it, this subject can be re remain an abstraction for those who don't have difficulty. 
The problem of evil is a burning question for those who are suffering. In other words, it becomes theoretical when you're not going through it, but it becomes practical when you're in the midst of it. Why is this happening, we ask? Why am I going through this? Why am I seeing this? Just like when we go back and some of the messages we just looked at just previously, talking about this subject matter in Habakkuk. This is one of the most troubling, burning questions of humanity. Why is this happening? We always want to know. This question is even more intense for those who suffer because of their faith. The question could be, hey, I'm following you, Jesus. Why? Sometimes when I look at the Apostle Paul, I often wonder, did he ever ask why? Probably, maybe with him, no, because he's had a direct confrontation with Jesus. But it would be so easy to think, man, I'm giving you my all, and then I keep getting these things happening to me all the time. Christians who believe themselves to be people of God, those who've received salvation and experienced the fulfillment of eternal promises, have even more difficult questions to answer when these things start happening. If God is really on our side, if he's really loving and powerful, then why are we suffering? That's just a natural question. In 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, So that no one would be shaken by these afflictions. For you, you, for, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For in fact, when we were with you, we were telling you in advance that we would suffer affliction. And so it has happened, as you well know. Sometimes we're just simply going to suffer because of our identity in Christ. You're going to come up to people, and they're just not going to like you when they find out you're a Christian. You can be the greatest person on the planet, but because of who you stand for, they will stand against you. Because we are united in Christ, we're also going to be united with his suffering. It comes, it's part of the package. Jesus never said, come follow me, and I will make you healthy, wealthy, and never have to struggle with anything. Who would, who would not follow that, by the way? You'd be a fool not to follow that. But why would you be following it? It's like the millionaire who can't, you know, I've said this about athletes before. You know, athletes who come from horrible circumstances, when they get famous, a lot of them keep the same group of people around them. Why? Because they were there when they had nothing. They had, when they had nothing. And then all of a sudden you have everything, and then everybody starts wanting to be your friend. Is that the kind of friend you want? See, that's not the kind of friend God wants. God wants people who love him. They just don't want the benefits from him. They love him. But when we're united with Christ, we're going to be united in his suffering. One would think belonging to Christ would ensure a nice, smooth life with little opposition. And I've actually heard that preached in pulpits before, and I always want to ask, why don't you go talk to the Apostle Paul about that theory? See what he has to say about it. To belong to Jesus can lead to suffering, and it has throughout the ages. Many people have died just simply because they professed Christ. However, when it's tempting to think, well, you know what, they just killed my family, they just killed, you know, those four people in Israel right now, what's going on with them? That's horrible to have your family members yanked out of your house by a bunch of thugs and just killed on the streets. It's a horrible thing. And some people say, well, you know, if God's with them, what's going on? You know, Paul says, oh, by the way, just in case you didn't know this, those people who persecute you, <clears throat> they're not getting away with it. Because they're going to be dealing with something for eternity. Not just, in a, not just a temporal punishment, not just to put in jail for a few years. They will pay for eternity. This passage provokes several thought-provoking issues because what we see is God's justice in persecution, in the midst of persecution. See, the Thessalonians were facing persecution simply because of Jesus. And Paul assured them that God's righteous judgment would befall their oppressors that yes, they're not getting away with it. I know it's hard, but they will pay in the end. This encourages us to trust in God's justice because many times we look around and we think, well, that's not fair. By the way, the best thing you can do when you, well, of course, we, most of us have raised our kids is telling, hey, life isn't fair. <laughs> Some people get into a shock when they find out that's not true. <clears throat> but... <clears throat> When things are happening at the hand of other people, it's easy to think, well, nothing's going to happen. Paul says, no, there will. And then when he talks about, when we look through this passage, we talk about the purpose of suffering. He explains that the Thessalonians are suffering. Their suffering is evidence of God's righteous judgment and his desire to count them worthy of his kingdom. See, Paul's not saying God sent this on you so you could prove yourselves. 
But since it's happening, you get the opportunity to prove yourself. I mean, what would happen? And when I was in, in uh, I went to uh, Columbia College for a while before I went to Bible College in Columbia, Missouri, a private uh, school. It used to be a Christian school, but really isn't anymore. But anyway, um, we had a class and we were talking about about um, persecution. I think that was at Columbia College. I've been to so many schools, I can't remember now. But anyway, yeah, it was at Columbia College. And no, no, I'm sorry, it was at Moberly Community College and I was taking a philosophy class I had to take. Didn't want to take it, but I had to. So the professor was talking about, well, if we were being persecuted right now, what would you do? And a lot of the youngsters said, well, I'd just deny Jesus that way I could keep living and then I'd preach Jesus later. Like, I get the idea of not wanting to be killed, believe me. Um, I, I really don't want to die at the hands of somebody else in persecution, but what kind of example would that be? Hey, follow Jesus, but when it gets tough, deny him, and then I'm going to tell you about him. <laughs> See, trials can show where you are. And I've always said this, when, you're, when, we were tra- when my girls played softball, my, my youngest daughter played softball, we always played up to a higher age division during the season. So when we played in tournaments, we'd be better because when you're 14 years old playing 18-year-old basically women, it's a whole different ball game. But when our girls played girls their age, they were really good uh, once they figured all these things out. But we see also the issue of future punishment in this passage. This passage describes the future punishment for those who reject God and who opposes people. They're not getting over. And unfortunately, this isn't something we should be gleeful about, by the way. This should help us double down to do what we can to help bring people to Christ. But those who want to reject him and those who persecute others, they're not going to get away with it. This, is a, this highlights the seriousness of rejecting the gospel. And it serves as a reminder of the consequences of unbelief. Oh, well, Joey is a good person. He doesn't have Jesus, but he doesn't need him because he's good. Yet yeah, Joey does need Jesus. Because without Jesus, Joey's not going to be with him. For, well, he meant well... It, you know, he sincerely believed this. Sincerity of something doesn't change reality. I can sincerely think I got $50 million in my bank account, and when I start to spend it, reality will hit. <laughs> because I don't have that. And so f- sincerity doesn't change reality. Folks, we need to understand this, and I don't mean this in a gleeful way at all. People without Jesus are going to die and go to hell. I don't care how good they are. I don't care if they're in your family I don't care if they're your friends. Without Jesus, they will not see God. Now, I don't say that to say, yeah. No, I say that as, oh my gosh. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? We're just going to say, well, they're a good person because I don't have the courage to even say anything to them. I'm going to let them die and go to hell. Well, they're a good person. That's delusional, folks. Paul backs that up here. He says, those who reject Christ will not be with him. They will suffer eternal punishment. Do you want that for your friends and family? I don't. This shows us the urgency of sharing the gospel. Verse 10 moves us to the hope of the second coming. In verse 10, it says the second coming of Christ, he will be glorified and he'll be admired by his followers. This instills hope in believers, reminding them that our present circumstances, no matter what they are, good or bad, are temporary. But eternal rewards await for those when we're in Christ's presence. We see the importance of responding to God's righteous judgment. This section challenges us to reflect on how we live in light of God's righteous judgment. We should be prompted to examine our hearts and to align our lives with the truth, to live faithfully, knowing that our actions and choices have eternal consequences. So think about it for a moment. When you have the opportunity to share the gospel, what are you going to do? Think about it. When you have the opportunity to be obedient or disobedient, what are you going to do? See, there's a lot of things we need to think about as we live this life that sometimes we just kind of float through without. Think about it. How are you going to respond to God even when you're in suffering and in persecution and in pain? Let's look at verses 11 and 12 for a final thought. And in this regard, we pray for you always that our God will make you worthy of his calling and fulfilled by his power your every desire for goodness and every work of faith, that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and in 
you, excuse me, and you in him, according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So our final thought is the prayer. He concludes this passage by saying, you know what, you're doing great. I understand, secondly, the persecution you're dealing with and, and what's going to happen to those who are doing it to you. But now he concludes this prayer and he says, he prays that when the Lord returns that his readers will live up to the life, that their life will match the calling from which they've been called. That they're going to be living in obedience. In, for, in Ephesians chapter 4, he says this, Therefore, the prisoner, I therefore, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live worthily of the calling from which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, putting up with one another in love. A worthy life is a life that is, called, that is faithfully serving God. A worthy life is simply a life that is serving God. Paul prays that with God's help, they can live that kind of life. And by the way, he emphasizes that God needs to help them because they can't do it on their own. This is what he's driving at in the latter part of verse 11. This prayer is offered because the life that we seek to live, we can't do it on our own power. We can't forgive, we can't love, we can't do these things without the help of the Holy Spirit that's within us, without the help, and without the help of God. This prayer is that God would fulfill in the Thessalonians their desire to live for him. And that's what Paul's praying for all of us, that God will help you to be able to do this. This prayer should, should help us reflect on the unique purpose that God has given to each of us. Because he says, God wants you to fulfill that purpose. We need to discover that purpose and align our abilities and our gifts and our passions and our desires toward that. When we see the purpose of life, our purpose of life in Christ is very simple that Jesus be glorified in us and we'll be glorified in him. When we understand that, it really changes things. When we are in Christ, a decision that we made, life is all about him. Paul's prayer acknowledges that living a worthy life is made possible by the grace of God, and he wants them to experience that. There's transformative power in God's grace, which empowers us to live in obedience and to overcome the challenges that we face in life and to grow spiritually, even in the midst of difficulty. So think about it. What's your life about? No matter what age you are, no matter how long you've been in, into this, what do you, <clears throat> who are you living for and why? You know, <clears throat> life isn't always easy, but yet we have a temptation to choose that easy path, don't we? One of the things that I love about our, our off-road adventure is sometimes we come to this road and you've got two choices. One is easier, one is more difficult. Now, left by myself many times, my wife's like, don't take the easy one. But there's been many, many times if I'd have been out there by myself, I'm take the easy one. But because of Andrew and, 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 and you know, particularly Chip, because he's crazy, dude. Um, <laughs> they're like, we're going to do it. And then they'll kind of make you feel like you're a little bit of a wimp if you won't try. <laughs> so I always told Rahul, one time, one time I got my truck stuck. And Andrew was getting the stuff out to pull me out. And I told my wife, oh, no, not on my watch. I got my truck. He ain't pulling me out. I got my truck out of there by myself. Some of that's pride probably, but it's just fun. But the point is, I see my other friends that can do it. They can climb that mountain in sometimes lesser trucks than what mine is. And I'm like, I can do it. And see, that's what our life's about. We're to go up to that mountain and I'm like, man, this looks so hard. I want to take that easy path. But then we see our friends going up that rough, rocky road and twisting and turning. The truck's going this way and this way. And, you know, and we're like, I can do that too. That's what we're here to do for one another. So people can look at you and say, I can do that too. That's what life's about. Philippians 2.10 tells us this. <clears throat> see, when the Lord returns, here's what's going to happen. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. And later on, it says every tongue will confess. The question is, are you going to do that? Because when you see him, you drop down and just sing glory, glory. He's here. Or are you going to be forced down in terror, knowing it's over? Our applications for life today, or from our message today, is very simple. We can't let life distract us from God. We need to think about what we're doing when we're tempted Am I going to leave him? If, I go, if I'm going to leave him, where am I going to go? As, as Apostle Peter said, who else has the words of life? This morning, our praise team is going to come up and lead us in a song of decision.
And if you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we give that opportunity to do that today. We have a God in heaven who loves us. He loved you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for you because he wants to be with you for eternity. You know, in this passage, you know, this stuff where he's talking about those who are persecuting you, those who reject the son, they're going to they're gonna face eternal separation from God. That is not something Paul is going, <laughs> oh yeah, they're going, God's going to get them. That's heartbreaking. And it should be heartbreaking to us. And it's breaking God's heart when you reject Christ, no matter what kind of life you live, no matter who you are. So this morning, if you need Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to come forward this morning. We're going to sing a song of decision. At that time, if you would like to come forward. If you're an immersed believer and would like to make First Christian your home, we'd love to have you come forward this morning. If you're struggling and need prayer, if you come forward, I'd be glad to pray with you or one of our elders, Roger Wood. And if you, but if you have a decision, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing Holy Ground.
That's one of the prettiest songs I think has ever been written for the church. Um, I just love that. The message is wonderful because when we come around the table, I think if we're not careful, sometimes we lose that sense of awe. You know, we take the cup and we take the loaf and we drink, you know, we meditate a little bit, we drink it down, and we next part of the service. But I think sometimes what I try to do is I like to reflect on how awesome God is and how awesome it is that I can have the opportunity for eternal life through him and how awesome it is that he knows me. See, I've always said that if you knew me, you wouldn't love me, but, but God knows me and he loves me. And that's just amazing. That's an awesome God. God doesn't look at my few, okay, many, a lot, tons of, a multitude of flaws. He doesn't define me by those. And you know how hard it is not to define somebody by their flaws? Not to define them by their mistakes? I mean, when we think of General Custer, what do we think of? Yeah, he had an ice cream stand somewhere. Custer's last stand. <laughs> Um, back where my daughter, oldest daughter lives, they have Custer's last stand, I think. So. Anyway, no, we think of his failure. Baseball, Bill Buckner, who was a great baseball player. We think of that poor guy who was so, he shouldn't have been out in the field probably, couldn't bend down and get a ground ball and cost the team a World Series. I mean, but he was a great player. We tend to define people by their mistakes, by their failures, and by their flaws. God doesn't do that. And that's amazing. That, to me, brings a sense of awe when I think of my God. And then when I come around this table, it even is greater to know that I am the object of his awesomeness because he shows these things to me, a horrible sinner who God loves in spite of who I am. He sees me through Jesus. And so when you take your uh, communion this morning, Think about how awesome our God is and how awesome it is that he loves you. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that you are so awesome, Lord. We're thankful that we have this time to reflect on the sacrifice that your son made, that he didn't wait till we were perfect, but while we were yet sinners, Christ went to the cross. We didn't put on makeup and look all pretty and lose weight. He loved us just like we are. And then he loves us so much that he'll help us to be more and more like him. Lord, I pray that when we take this cup and take this loaf this morning, that we do so with a joyful heart and a sense of awe. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
On the inside of your bulletin, we have many announcements for you to take, uh, to take note of. Uh, the harvest party preparation is getting underway. You see some of the things that we're needing for that. Uh, you see the information about the, um, the leadership nominations, and there's information there. Those nominations will be coming down here very shortly. Of course, our business meeting will be held on December 3rd. <clears throat> today, our elders and preachers are getting together. Jerry's groups are meeting, and Roger's group is meeting today. The office will be closed on Monday. And the stitches of love will take place. We have our leadership team meeting Tuesday. All of our Bible studies will take place on Wednesday, or excuse me, on Wednesday. So we encourage you to be there for that. Operation Christmas Childs, accepting donations for uh, children's scissors, pencil sharpeners, soft toothbrushes, uh, combs, and soaps. Um, there's going to be a shoebox folding party on Sunday the 22nd. And so you can take note of those announcements. Um, also in the form of announcements, um, I've put this out on email and I texted everybody because we don't use our texting service much, but when we feel like it's something important, we do. Um, we did have somebody, I don't know who it is, claiming to be me. The first thing that you should have noticed is when was the last time I called myself Pastor Jeff? Uh, the answer to that is never. But I, I, don't, I don't do that. I don't mind pe other people doing that, but I don't use titles with my name very, very rarely. But also the email address wasn't mine, which you might not know that. But if you get, ever get anything from something like that, it says, hey, like that was, and if any of you responded to it, they're asking you to get gift cards, we would never do that. We would call and talk to you. If I wanted you to buy me gift cards, <laughs> no, hey, can you buy me some gift cards? No, but I'm just saying, um, um, no data was compromised. It wasn't a hack. It was somehow somebody got into our directory. I don't know how, but we've taken steps to fix that, so that shouldn't happen again. If you want to get on our online directory, you need to use your servant keeper, keeper credentials. If you don't have those, the email explains it's very simple how to do it. And you have to use your family email address, which some of you might not know what that is. If you question that, send us, call us, and we'll tell you what it is, because our system has to use one email as a family email. So you could have five emails in your family, but there's one that's the family email. So... If you need help with that, let us know. But anyway, very sorry that happened. Nothing I can do about it. Hope nobody sent this guy anything. Um, but we tried to, tried to warn everybody. If it ever happens again, which hope it doesn't, we may just phone call everyone and just say, hey, tune it out. You can send them prayers. <laughs> Matter of fact, a few of my friends knew it was a scam, and so they were playing with them. I've actually done that before, too. My mom almost got taken for $2,000 from some people like this, so I have a special place in my heart for them. If it weren't for my sister-in-law's sister working where my mom went, my mom would have spent two grand for these people. It, what they do is they have you take a picture of the card on both sides, so you've got the numbers, and then you, they want the receipt. Then what they do is they drain the, drain the money out of there, and you've lost your money, and there's no chance. You can't get it back, so it's pretty serious. Anybody sends you something asking you for gift cards, it's almost, it's 105% of the time a scam. So just be, be wise with that. I don't want to see anybody lose their money. You work too hard for it. Okay, um, I want to show you a video now from Operation Christmas Child. It's uh, because it's that time of year. And so here we go. Right now we're in Ukraine. We've given out the 200 million shoebox in 30 years, 200 million boxes. It's hard to fathom, but it's something God has done. Every box is important. The 200 millionth is not any more important than the person who gave the first box, because every box is an opportunity to tell a child about God's love, about his son, Jesus Christ. Now, being able to be on the other side to deliver a shoebox to children in Ukraine is just an absolute privilege. This country has suffered incredibly and is, is still suffering. These children, this is just a chance to, to put the war behind them for an hour or so, and it gives us a chance just to love them. I got to actually give out the 200 million shoe box to this little girl. She was just so excited about this gift. Her favorite item was a wind-up flashlight. In such a dark time right now in Ukraine, I think that really just drew her in because it's bright, it's yellow. She was just so excited about it. When the gospel was presented, I pray that their hearts were opened. 
the seeds of gospel were planted in those hearts. I know that they felt love today. I know that they felt the hope and love of Jesus. And amidst the war, we know that he is powerful. He is bigger than all of this. And the fact that Operation Christmas Child is able to come into this country and continue to deliver the gospel is it's incredible. It just shows you how amazing our God is. We hope to be able to send a lot of boxes out. It affects a lot of children, and um, it, it'll have a big impact for the kingdom of God, so make sure you, you do those. Um, on the back of your bulletin, we have our prayer concerns and things that we're celebrating. Um, David Wright sent a prayer of praise to us. It's in their bulletin. Uh, I want to pray for Doug Jacobs. His mother passed away the other day in Georgia, and so keep him in your prayers. Also, we all have been seeing what's going on with Israel, and just pray that... Um, that will stop as soon as possible. And um, we want to pray for our nation. We have a lot of people we've been praying for that are struggling with their health. It's good to see some of our folks back with us today. We also have troops that are deployed. We're lifting up our shut-ins and keep them in your prayers. We're also praying for Operation Christmas Child. That's our outreach this month we're focusing on. And um, we're praying for CareNet as, as the mission. So um, at this time, let's stand together. I'll give you an opportunity to lift your hearts to God, and then we'll have a, I'll have a closing prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are so blessed. And Father, I pray that... Um, you hear all the prayers that are lifted up. You know what's going on in situations around the world. Lord, I just pray that uh, people will see the action you'll take and how great you are. Lord, I pray that as we live life this week, that we live it to the fullest for you and that we don't let anything get in the way of our faith growing and our love for one another growing and our love for you growing. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for church this morning. Have a great week in the Lord, everybody. Praise.